that we keep all these thoughts together. So, in verse 11, we learn that the named servants of the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, have been specifically given to the body of the church by Jesus himself. And what this means is is that they are much more than just well-intentioned or educated people who stand up in front of us to render an opinion. But they have an authority that ought to be respected and acted upon, provided that what they say is consistent with Scripture. Now that last little piece might seem to be unnecessary, but really it would be unwise to imagine that there should be no control or testing over what a mere human might say to their brothers and sisters about spiritual matters with an eternal consequence. They are given to the church for more than just decoration or mere administrative purposes. What we see and hear from them is expected and intended to bring movement to our bodies in God's service and change to our hearts. And that work, folks, is the responsibility of the hearer, not the speaker. When we stand before the Lord in judgment, he isn't going to release us from action because Kofain or Dave or Chris or whoever did a poor job of explaining that passage. He's going to be asking why, if we heard his word and we tested it and it was sound, then why didn't we act on it? I'm certain that trying to answer that question will be well beyond being described as awkward. This theme was developed in verses 12 to 14 to show that there is meaning and purpose in what we hear. Friends, we aren't here today just because of dumb luck. Our Lord is sovereign. He has brought you and I to this place for a purpose. His purpose, the outcome of which is always for his glory and our good. It might not be realized today, but we can absolutely bet that the equipping that Paul was speaking about isn't for show. It's intended to move and grow us from the spiritually childish state that we are in when we come to Christ to a mature and useful state where we can be effective workers for him. And it's also intended to protect us from the evil and sinful world that we live in, where Satan prowls around looking to destroy and devour us. What's the reason for this providing of servants and equipping of saints? Well, that's our topic for today. Let's read then from Ephesians 4, and we'll start in verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself 
in life. May the Holy Spirit of God bring these words to life for us. At the point we begin our discussion today, there is a shift from explaining what life lived as a spiritual child looks like to life lived as a spiritually mature person. And of course, the point of movement is at the beginning of verse 15 with that word, but. Paul is summarizing a process here, not a moment of epiphany. He is talking about the process of sanctification. Whilst we are justified instantaneously at the very point, the very moment of salvation, this maturing process, becoming more and more like Christ, starts from that moment of justification and then it continues right through our mortal lives until the moment that we leave it. The maturity Paul speaks about does become real though at some moment along that line. You know, we, we can see it. We know that we are talking and looking at to sorry, talking to and looking at a mature Christian. Although when that happens, well it does vary from person to person. And I suspect that we might reasonably believe that its earlier arrival has a very great deal to do with how much time we spend in God's word and on our knees. What does that maturity look like? How will we know that we have become mature or we are talking to a mature believer? Well, the first thing we will notice is that as we read here, they are speaking the truth. And this means more than just the integrity of the words coming from a person's lips. It means the integrity of their whole lives. The Greek word that's used means real and actual, not counterfeit. It looks right through a situation to show the reality lying at the basis of an appearance, rather than just looking at it and taking what you see at face value. We can understand then, in this case, that we are not just encountering a person who looks like they are speaking the truth, but someone who continuously shows by their actions in life that they are truthful through and through. No matter what angle we use to look at them, or even if we got an MRI scanner to slice them up and look inside, we would only find consistent truth throughout their whole body and life. On the other hand, childish Christians carry a superficial layer of truth. They may look good, but bump one with something sharp like a stressful situation and the immaturity will soon be exposed. And there are a number of reasons for this delicate state. Firstly, they might just be a very new Christian who just needs some time to grow and flourish. And this seems like me to me to be a super obvious opportunity for some discipleship to take place. In our last sermon I spoke about how one bug very quickly replicates and becomes two billion bugs in a, just a short time, 24 hours. One of the things that mature Christians should be doing is passing on their maturity and knowledge to those who have just stepped onto the path of faith so that they in turn can do the same for others. In fact, this will be one of the ways that we recognize maturity when we see it. Someone who is steeped in the truth thoroughly won't be holding on to it just for themselves, will they? They will come alongside new believers and help them along. Secondly, immature Christians might be in a church that just doesn't feed them the truth. 
And sadly, this is a lot more common than it ought to be. A couple of years ago, Colfane and I went to a conference in Brisbane. And following that, we went with some friends to their church. It was a very big church. It was very lively, I can tell you. And the offering was frankly stupendous. But I suspect that Colfane and I were the only two people in the whole place who'd taken a Bible with us. And in the end, we didn't even have to open it because we weren't asked to. The thing is that people are like magpies. We like things that are shiny. There are too many shiny churches and they especially capture our young people. Parents, you need to be sure that whatever youth program your offspring attends is really feeding them the good fertilizer of God's holy scriptures so that they grow and mature. Young people, where do you fellowship and why do you go there? Is it for the boys or girls there or is it because they have a really loud band? Is the excitement more important than the word? If it is, then you're never going to grow. And as Paul has already accurately pointed out, you will be tossed to and fro by the wind. A lightweight church will not help your character to endure when life becomes difficult. And life will become difficult. I can tell you from my own experience, sadly, that I have wasted too much time in churches like this. And I made many serious and painful mistakes as a consequence. And I deeply regret not seeking the right food earlier in my life. So, make the right decision now because it will pay off a lot sooner than you think. Thirdly, a person may be childish just because they're stubborn and they won't listen. They may attend a church where they do hear truth every Sunday, but because of selfishness or a love of something in the world or just plain laziness, they persist in childish ways. They do not change or grow from one year to the next, but despite knowing that they are not really satisfied, that something is lacking, they still won't confront the reality that it's lacking inside them. And these folk will often drift from church to church thinking they're going to something better, but really they're just running away from confronting the truth. Be honest today. Does this maybe describe you? If it does, what are you going to do about it? The good news, the great news is that you aren't alone. If you just reach out, Firstly, the Holy Spirit is right there with you and he's full of good things to grow and nourish you. Speak to him in prayer. Seek his wisdom inside the pages of your Bible and you will find such growth and contentment there as you will never find anywhere else. And there are also mature Christian men and a woman woman around you. Ask for their help. Meet with them in small groups and join with them one-on-one to pray and be mentored. No matter what the cause of childishness is, there are four infallible cures. Study God's word. Pray constantly. Act on what you hear. And disciple others. If these things are faithfully done and combined, then growth and maturity will always result. 
The Lord knows us and what we need and he will always provide if we do our part. Friends, we can act to motivate those in their early walks and those who have persisted in walking like children. Now, some years ago when we were studying the book of James, I shared a little poem that my grandfather was very fond of and I think it's appropriate to use it again, so here it is. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Shun him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a child. Lead him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is a sleeper. Awaken. He who knows and knows that he knows is wise. Follow him. In love, let's lead those children and wake those sleepers. Avoid the fools and follow the wise. This is truly a worthwhile work. Now, Paul doesn't just say speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? Well, I found this little illustration in a commentary. G. Campbell Morgan had a number of children, and four or five of the men went into the ministry. Mr. Morgan was an outstanding expositor, and they were all interested in the Bible. They were having a discussion around the table one time about what was the best translation. And this was many years, and I don't know the translation they were talking about, but I do know that Mr. Morgan used the American Standard Version. And so he undoubtedly spoke for that. And the English Revised Version was also used. Somebody spoke for that, and several other versions. And finally, Howard Moody Morgan, who also became a minister, and was a minister in this country, spoke up and said, well, the translation I like is Mother's Translation. And what he meant by that was simply his mother's Christian life and the way in which she translated the truth into Christian living. Well, that's what I think Paul means when he says speaking the truth in love. Bearing in mind that we have learned that speaking the truth is living a life that is becoming more and more like Jesus, who is God, and God is love, then we shouldn't be surprised to find that truth and love are inseparable. If one is there, and so is the other. So if we become more and more like Christ, then we must necessarily become more loving. To have it any other way means that we will be speaking in, any, in other terms that are less palatable. For example, to speak the truth without love is a thing called brutality. And to love without a spirit of truth is merely hypocrisy. As believers, our witness, our behaviour in front of other Christians and the world should never have to be described in those terms. And how will we avoid that? Well, I'd love to say there's an immediate fix, but truthfully, we're always caught in the struggle with our flesh. So sadly, there is no finger-flicking fix. If we go back to those cures for childishness, I spoke about just now. Study, prayer, practice and discipleship, then we definitely will learn to consistently speak the truth in love. As much if it's true if we do, we won't if we don't. No one alive is exempt from the need to take part in these disciplines because we all start in sin and we all continue in sin. 
So we all need to grow in spiritual maturity. Brothers and sisters, so many of our problems and failures as Christians lie behind our failure to practice these very simple activities. Sometimes we go for more complex stuff. Complicated and hard to understand must be good, right? Just like the biggest and sorest injection. We will subscribe to the latest program devised by the American mega pastor, buy all their books, try their 42-part plan, but somehow it falls flat. And next week there will be another one to try, and the week after that perhaps we'll try some candles and meditation. Or maybe we'll just sit and contemplate our navels. I can't see mine, it's around the corner. But there is no working substitute for study, prayer, practice and discipleship, is there? So what are you waiting for? Go out and do them. Let's press on. As a result of the two wheat picks and muesli I had this morning for breakfast, I am presently growing. All over, unfortunately. If I continue to eat too much and neglect my exercise, I will grow, but in a very disorganized, fruitless way. I need purpose and I need focus. If I decide, for example, that I will do the Taupo Ironman next year, if I then get advice on the right diet, swim 5Ks on Mondays and Saturdays, and then run 10Ks on Tuesdays and Thursdays, ride 50Ks on Fridays, and then rest on Sunday, pretty soon I'm going to be dead. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to be in great shape to, to achieve my goal. This is because I have put that goal in the very forefront of my mind. I've studied it, and I will live it. I will put all of my resources into success. I am thinking about what it will be like to achieve that goal. Do you think I will fail under those circumstances? Of course not. And this is why Paul sets before us the believer's goal. To grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We always know what our goal is and what sort of character we are aiming for. The Greek word used for grow up means to grow or cause to grow or increase. For someone or something to grow, there are two things that must be present. They must have the element of life within and must be acted upon by an outside power. Now, up here is a piece of wood. It was once a tree that relied on water and sunlight and some trace minerals to grow. It was tall and green and strong, but someone cut it down. And then they sliced it up and they dried it and now it hangs on the wall. The thing is that along the line, that mysterious quality called life that infused it was extinguished it. And although I might take that wood and soak it in a barrel of water in the sun, with all those things that it needs to, needed to grow and used to do. And even if I did it for 
a million years, it will never ever grow again. And what's worse is not only that, is that wood dead, but eventually it will be burned. Before anyone receives Jesus as their saviour, spiritually, they are just like this piece of wood. Dead as, and there is no hope of growth in all the world. Not in wealth or fame or poverty or discomfort or meditation or any kind of spirituality. Wherever or however we may look. We can immerse ourselves in these things and chase after them, but they will not make one bit of difference. We are nowhere, no hope. Our sin has cut us off from the source of life, our creator God. And as the wood will be burned, so shall we. There are real consequences for our sin, for breaking God's laws. But Christ has conquered sin and death on our behalf. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins with his death on the cross, and then also in rising again made us alive too to God, to have the relationship with him that he originally intended. This is the good news of the gospel and it fulfills the conditions we have just spoken about as being vital for growth. Life inside and the action of an outside power. Believers have this new life inside where once there was only death and God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit all work from the outside to encourage and facilitate that growth. (laughs) You know, that is so amazing and humbling. When you think about the power and might and majesty of our Creator and Lord compared to us, yet He reaches down and rescues us even when we have been so disobedient. Praise God. With these two forces acting on us, our growth should not be random or misguided. The goal is clear, to grow up into Christ. But our own actions or lack of actions, can lengthen that journey. Now, we all know that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Of course, it's obvious. And so, too, the shortest distance between salvation and perfect sanctification is also a straight line. So, of course, that's the way we should use, isn't it? But we never quite manage it, do we? We are constantly held back and diverted by the desires of the flesh and by fears, like, what will other people think? And a whole bunch of other stuff. So our path of growth into Christ wanders a little or a lot, depending on our stubbornness, or frankly, sometimes just plain stupidity. So that's okay, isn't it? It's just a fact of life, and we can let it be and get on with it and put up with it. In the book of Philippians, Paul gives us advice, doesn't he? And this is a bit of a paraphrase, of course. Brethren, I haven't got there yet, but I'm not worried. Looking around to see what's interesting, and especially looking to the past for clues, I amble in the general direction of Jesus. He looks quite nice, doesn't he? Or maybe you prefer this version. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, the first version is rubbish, something I made up. But despite that, doesn't it ring just a little bit true for the way that we often live? Instead of pressing on, we amble. Instead of forgetting what we can't change and trying to do what comes along next right, we live in the past. We stay the way that we have always been. We take our eyes off the real prize, the one of literally infinite value, and instead we become distracted by working for worldly things that will just become dust in a very short time. I say it's time to stop that way of life. Let's commit to take a straight line course, to pursue spiritual maturity with vigor and have our aim to be getting there as soon as possible. We must get out our Bibles, get on our knees and get on with the good works that God has prepared for us to do. Let's stop using our own heads so much and look to our real head, Jesus. He is the head of the church. It's brain that controls and directs all of its activities. If we try to have a church or a faith that has no Christ at its head, of course we will have a decapitated faith and church. And just like a decapitated body, its movements are disconnected, pointless and jerky. Why would we want something like that? Friends, Jesus is our head. Everything we say and do must acknowledge that. We must submit to his direction and conform to his example as the surest and shortest path to maturity. So we might ask the question, what would a church look like that was full of mature Christians? Well, let's read verse 16 again. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In this room today, there are no two people who are exactly the same. We are different sexes, different colours, weights, shapes, and we even come from different parts of the world. Yet as believers, we all have just the one thing in common, Christ as our head. No matter what we say or think or do or look like, we are held together by this unshakable bond. We might not be able to see it, but we are nonetheless held together and directed as one body by him. If we rely on anything else at all for our moment-to-moment support, then we will not operate in harmony our body will be disjointed and pull against itself and fall. However, if we take our design spaces in the living building of the church and submit to the Lord's shaping, our body will be unified and effective in his work. There are some notable things about the language that Paul has used in verse 16. First of all, the word that he uses for whole means just that. Whole. Every single part, nook, and cranny. It doesn't mean that folks in the row of seats right at the back of the church are exempt. Yes, you lot right at the back there. It means all without exception. So every single believer has a place. 
<laughs> Some people might see that as a nuisance. I come to church to be blessed, not to be a blessing, so I don't waste my time with the service nonsense. Well, up front, of course, that's the wrong heart to have. But I'd be very surprised if there was anyone here who was thinking like that. But who knows? What we ought to see is that God has prepared a special place in his body for me. For me. Yes, for you. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself or what you can do. You belong to a family. And the Lord doesn't see what you see. He sees your potential. You know, Scripture is full of individuals who we wouldn't think much of in real life if we had met them. Yet God took them and did very great things with them. But I don't want to give the wrong idea here. Heroic public deeds aren't the be-all and end-all. It is true that some folk may go on to have amazing ministries as missionaries or become evangelists who bring the gospel to tens of thousands of people. But others might just quietly make tea on a Sunday or offer up prayers in a private space where no one knows. But God knows, and he sees the believer's heart. The one who prays in secret for their brothers and sisters faithfully is just as worthy of honour in God's kingdom as the one who has that huge public profile. The important thing is that we are obedient and do our designed part in the body. The next interesting word is joined. And here it's used in the sense of joined together, not like I joined the church. The way it's written in the original Greek signifies both a present and a continuous process. In other words, it's happening right now as we're sitting here and it will continue in each of us until we leave and even carry on then until the moment that we die. The Lord is shaping us for a very close and intimate spiritual joint with each other. And the Greek term from which this phrase was translated was one used in construction work to represent the whole of the elaborate process where stones were fitted together. And this work included the preparation of the surfaces, the cutting, the rubbing, the testing, the preparation of the dowels and the dowel holes, and finally the fitting of the dowels with molten lead. In short, it represents the careful joining of every component of a structure. Each part is precisely cut to fit snugly and strongly and beautifully with every other part. Nothing is out of place, defective, misshapen or inappropriate. And this is exactly the work that God is doing with us here in this church and in every other church where Jesus reigns as Lord. Yet we are living stones, not dead granite, so that each of us must be willing to submit to the shaping process. We've spoken a lot about cooperation with God today. And here it is again. Do you think he's trying to tell us something? What is the Lord saying to us today about the way we submit to his shaping hand? Do you think that he is pleased with us or could we do more? Each one of us needs to go before him in prayer to ask that question individually and be prepared to act on the answer. 
Not only are we joined together, but the closest, closeness of the union is further emphasised when, when we read that we are also knit, or in some translations, held together. And the term used is a philosophical one, which describes the process of arguments being gathered up and brought together in order to prove or demonstrate something. So, in the same way, God brings his people together and shapes them to show his argument. His proposition for life, which is the worth of a relationship with him and the promise of his glorious kingdom demonstrated in the shape of the church here on earth. Now we have this picture of the church as a body or a building constructed of many parts, carefully fitted together and held together under the direction and headship of Christ. And thus guided, it will move smoothly and in the specific direction intended by its head. But these parts still have joints between them. They haven't become a continuous mash of the same stuff. And this recognises that each of us is a special and unique creation of God and that we bring individual talents and abilities to the service of the body. And there's a beautiful balance in this. Imagine a body that had too many feet and not enough legs or maybe a hand with no fingers. It would be useless, wouldn't it? But God has carefully crafted his church to do its work. There will be the right balance of skills and talents within it, provided that each part contributes as it is intended to do. And that contribution isn't intended to be stingy. Paul uses the word epikuregia, which means to give generously or lavishly. In the ancient days in Greece, at the great festivals, the eminent playwriters of the day presented their productions. And Greek plays all have a chorus, and to equip and train that chorus was very expensive. So most often, wealthy public-spirit citizens would generously offer to defray the entire expenses of the chorus. And that gift is described by the word koregia, which is the root of the word that we're talking about today. It's also found use in circumstances such as the provision of supplies for war, which is obviously another expensive process, and marriage contracts to describe the loving support that a husband gives to his wife. But it always carries with it that sense of generosity and abundance. A joint has the potential for movement either way, doesn't it? There's a place for things to flow from one to another. So Paul's illustration shows how Christ, as the head, gives generously to the body, which then spreads that blessing liberally to and fro amongst itself, through the joints, so that all may share in it as needed, and then pass back their thanks and worship to the head. With this image in mind, we can understand what is meant by according to the effective working by which every part does its share. The great theologian Calvin wrote this. He said, If we want to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. This quote highlights the contribution of each member to the life and development of the body as a whole. You and I are part of that body and therefore it speaks directly to us. So we should be constantly thinking about whether we add to or take from that body. We may think that what we do or fail to do 
only affects us. But God's word clearly shows the error in that thinking. When any single one of us fails to do what they are intended to, then the rest of the body loses something. And that's humbling for any of us to think about, isn't it? To think that there will be some measure of paralysis in the church if I am not working there at my full strength. So, may God help us to come to know what our gifts are and may God help us to exercise them, to exercise them well and to exercise them in love. The result of putting individuals who have diligently cooperated with God to become mature Christians together in a body where they also cooperate with each other for the good of the body surely cannot fail to be a startling success. Such a group of believers certainly causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now edifying is just a flash word for building. If we were to think what would happen just inside our little church, if every single part of the body in here grew stronger, and then they used that strength for the benefit of the other parts around them, don't you think that the whole thing would become so very much stronger and such a wonderful space to share? And there's another possibility for understanding the meaning of the word growth here. The body of the church is supposed to be a representation of God here on earth. Unbelievers ought to be able to look at its people and workings and say, hey, that's something good, that's something special. I want to be a part of that. New believers will be added to us and the body will grow. But we will only build an appealing vision like that when we work as Paul has explained in this passage. And that is by seeking personal maturity through study and prayer, action and discipling, and throughout that process, searching out and working in our own special spot in the body. Now, I don't presently hear people beating on our door to be let in. And as much as I love and appreciate you all, I'm not convinced that we are all fully in line with the vision of maturity and cooperation that we've read about today. And of course, <laughs> that includes me. I'd say this suggests that we have work to do. So what are we waiting for? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us this model that we can understand. Lord, I pray that the sight of that model would challenge us to take our proper places in it. For your glory, Lord, because this is what you designed. May the Holy Spirit work within us to make that vision a reality in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.